When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Welcome, Crimes of Passion listeners. If you are just joining us because you heard the news that Crimes of Passion has ended, then I want to thank you for joining me here. I had the best time doing something I love, and while it wasn't a happy ending, I am so thankful I got to say goodbye to my listeners there. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting me there, and hopefully you enjoy the narrative style of True Crime Cases with Lainey. Okay, enough of the business. On to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. It's a common horror movie trope, the killer in the house calling out to a young woman who is frequently either home alone or babysitting a child. Or, such is the case in John Carpenter's Halloween, the young babysitter being stalked by a silent homicidal maniac intent on murdering her. The innocent babysitter having to fend for herself and fight off or flee from a murderer in a house, either her own or the unfamiliar home of a family she works for, is a popular urban legend and the plot to many a teen slasher movies or campfire story. But sadly, as with most urban legends, it is a tale that does have some basis in reality, as we will see in the two cases covered in today's episode. Okay, on to the show. On March 18, 1950, the weather in Columbia, Missouri, was miserable, with temperatures in the mid-twenties and gusts of winds that blew freezing rain and sleet in sheets. An eighth-grade party was being held on that blustery Saturday night, but Janet Chrisman had a babysitting job that prevented her from attending with her friends. She should have been unhappy about this, but the job had its upsides. Janet was making payments on a burgundy suit for Easter, and the money she earned that night would pay for the last installment. Janet was 13 years old, and her parents owned Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse. The family home was located right above the restaurant. Janet babysat three-year-old Greg Romack that night. The Romacks lived just outside of the western side of town in a single-story home, and the parents had a bridge game to attend that night. Before they left, just before 8 o'clock, Mr. Romack showed Janet where the shotgun was and how to load it. 
Mr. Romack also told her to be sure she turned on the porch light if anyone knocked on the door. They wanted her to be able to keep herself safe should anyone approach the home. The police department was quiet that night, with the weather driving most folks inside. However, the shrill ring of the phone in the police department at 10.35 p.m. that night shattered the peace and forever destroyed the innocence of Columbia. When Officer Roy McCowan answered the phone at 10.35 p.m., he could barely make out the caller's words. She was so hysterical. All he could make out were the words, come quick, before the call was abruptly disconnected. But because it was a weekend, nobody was at the switchboard. So without more information from the caller, their location could not be traced. With no address or other leads to go on, the officer could not follow up and respond to the request for help. However, another call came through three hours later at 1.35 a.m. when the Romax arrived home from their bridge game. They found the Venetian blinds were open, the front door unlocked, and the back door ajar. A side window was also smashed. Thankfully, their three-year-old was unharmed and had slept through the entire thing. But tragically, the same could not be said for Janet, only ten years older than her charge. Carl Sapp, prosecuting attorney at the time, said that with the Venetian blinds open, anyone could have seen Janet if she were anywhere in the living room. Apparently, upon spotting the young girl, the assailant had moved a sawhorse from the backyard to the side window, then broken the window to gain entry into the home. Investigators said that Janet had evidently put up an impressive fight to protect herself despite her small size, but ultimately, she had been incapacitated when she was hit on either side of the head with some kind of object which had left penetration marks. She was badly beaten, had scratch marks on her face, and was ultimately strangled with a cord ripped from a household iron. Janet was also found to have been sexually assaulted during the attack. Bloodhounds were brought in almost immediately to trace the perpetrator, but they lost the trail just as quickly. Fingerprints were taken, other evidence was gathered, and the Columbia police chief put out a plea for anyone to report individuals who they thought were acting strangely or that had scratches on their faces. One officer believed the attack had been someone who was familiar with the house due to their apparent familiarity with its layout. Because the murder happened outside of the city limits, the case fell under the jurisdiction of the sheriff's office. As such, it wasn't long before a pissing contest happened between the sheriff's office and the police department. Days after Janet's murder, the Columbia City Council created five additional positions and had the police chief order a new police car to facilitate the investigation. One of the newly hired officers would eventually serve as police chief for 21 years, but his first duty was to sit in the Romac residence from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. for 12 nights in case the killer showed back up. It was this officer's presence in the Romac's home that stirred things up between the two law enforcement agencies. The chief of police changed the phone number used to contact the emergency services to one that was easier to dial, 112. He also deputized multiple local businessmen and asked them to watch the downtown area. On March 21, 1950, Janet Chrisman was buried. It was her 14th birthday and she was buried in the burgundy suit she had been paying for with the money she earned from babysitting. The investigation continued. Investigators believe that Janet's rape and murder was linked to the rape of another babysitter and the attempted rape of a college student that had both occurred within the previous six months. 
Investigators believed that Janet's rape and murder was linked to the rape of another babysitter and the attempted rape of a college student that had both occurred within the previous six months in the same neighborhood. Investigators had taken fingerprints at the Romack house, as well as collecting footprints that had been left in the sleet. Within days of Janet's murder, the police chief traveled to Fort Smith, Arkansas, to interview two potential suspects. One of them had a newspaper article about Janet's murder in his pocket, but couldn't explain how he came to have it. However, this proved to be a dead end. On March 25, 1950, the Carpenters Union in the Columbia, Missouri area reported that one of their members was beaten during an interrogation. The allegations were directed at a member of the State Highway Patrol and the police chief. Henry Bates, who was described as an industrious, sober, and law-abiding member of the union, was arrested while at the grocery store. He alleged that during questioning, he was brutally beaten and mistreated, although the officers countered that they had only asked Mr. Bates to remove his shirt so that they could determine if he had additional scratches, other than the ones that were visible. While they were interrogating Mr. Bates, other officers were searching his home and speaking to his neighbors. They released him based on the lack of evidence, his location on the night of Janet's murder, and because his neighbors were able to vouch for him. Sheriff Powell soon became focused on one individual, Robert Mueller, who was a childhood friend of Mr. Romack's and had been at the Romack home before. Robert Mueller was a captain in the Air Force and had a distinguished military record. Mrs. Romack testified to the grand jury that she was uncomfortable around Robert, who had touched her inappropriately just two days before. And Mr. Romack testified that Robert had once told him that he admired Janet Chrisman's well-developed form. Robert knew Janet was babysitting for the Romacks that night because she had turned down a babysitting job for him and had even told Mr. Romack, quote, I might have done it and then forgotten it. Robert also knew where the Romax iron was kept because he had used it before. Additionally, he had made other comments about Janet Chrisman, who had babysitted his own children on numerous occasions, wondering whether she was a virgin and speaking about how he wanted to get a virgin. He had also suggested to Mr. Romack that they go to Henson Creek, which was a popular parking area for teenagers. There, they could get a nice young girl. Robert Mueller carried on his person a special mechanical pencil that loosely matched the puncture wounds in Janet's head. Although the initial and prevailing thought was that the murderer had entered through the side window, furniture and other items near the broken window were undisturbed. The day after the murder and before news reports had discussed the house being in disarray, Robert called Mr. Romack and offered to come over and help clean up the mess. He also told Mr. Romack that he did not have an alibi for the night before. The sheriff wanted to arrest Robert Mueller, but also wanted to make sure he had his mechanical pencil on him when the arrest was made. Law enforcement worked with Mr. Romack to stage a game of bridge because Robert always took score. Around 8 p.m. on May 4, 1950, Mr. Romack called Robert to pick him up. Robert did so and only minutes later they were stopped and Robert Mueller was taken into custody by officers. However, rather than following protocol by taking Robert to the county jail, he was taken to a remote farmhouse that belonged to one of the deputies. Robert Mueller was then interrogated for hours without a phone call, a break, or any sleep. He was not provided with the opportunity to make bail, 
He was attempting to cooperate and only asked that they contacted his wife who was on call at the hospital and might need the car. No such call was ever made. The next day, Robert was taken to Jefferson City to undergo a lie detector test. Robert agreed to take the polygraph, but the sheriff did not make the prosecuting attorney aware of the exam, nor did he request an arrest warrant. The sheriff was apparently concerned about the prosecutor's ties to the police chief. A few weeks later, a grand jury was convened to indict Mueller. The findings were released on June 17, 1950, but no indictment was found against Robert Mueller, and in fact, the judge chastised law enforcement for not collaborating. Quote, in the opinion of the grand jurors, much of the effort expended has been wasted and dissipated because of the failure to correlate the information available, according to the report. The report also blamed petty jealousies that led to an almost complete lack of cooperation between the various law enforcement agencies. No arrest has ever been made, and the only trial pertaining to this murder was from Robert Mueller's understandable lawsuit against the sheriff's office for the violation of his civil rights. Robert Mueller later said, On the occasion when I was apprehended, Mr. Weidermeyer came up alongside my car and directed me where to go and I was taken out to his home and interrogated there. In the course of that interrogation, there was violence of any kind used against me. I didn't ask to use the phone and made no request to communicate with anyone. The only request I made was to communicate with my wife and to tell her where I was because she was on call to the hospital and would need the car if she were called in. I didn't know there was a telephone out there. I was never shown a telephone. I didn't inquire. It was out in the country. The case against law enforcement was dismissed when the jury decided his civil rights were not violated. Years later, a woman told a reporter that she had narrowly escaped a similar fate to Janet's. Lois Terry was a friend of Janet's and reported that she had been babysitting the week before when a man knocked on the door. There are scant details about this, whether she opened the door or kept the door locked, who this individual was, and so on, but Lois was convinced he was sinister just by looking at him. After Janet's murder, Lois never took another babysitting job. Several years later, an older female acquaintance introduced Lois, now the married name Voight, to her husband, and Lois's blood ran cold. She instantly recognized the face of the sinister man she'd never forgotten, who she strongly believed to have killed her friend Janet. To this date, this individual's name has not been released. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción,
información, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Ok, round 2. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Uh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Robert Mueller and his family left Columbia, and he continued his career in the Air Force, eventually reaching the rank of major. They moved to California and lived there until their passing. His wife passed away in 2004, and he passed away in 2006. Many of the law enforcement in Columbia believed until they died that Robert Mueller had killed Janet. Janet's murder ended an age of innocence in Columbia, the town that never locked its doors suddenly ran low stocks on locks and deadbolts. Her friends reported that even as women, they still slept with the lights on if their husbands were gone. Several years later, a neighboring state would experience the same horrors as another babysitter was brutally slain. This time, the children left in her care were also taken. On October 29, 1984, in Arlington, Kansas, Deborah Vogelsang left for work at 5.30 a.m. She left her husband James with their twin two-year-old boys to wait on their babysitter, Tammy Mooney. Tammy lived in a trailer across from the Arlington grade school. She arrived at the Vogelsang home right at 7.30 a.m. and then James left for work. At around 6 o'clock p.m. that evening, James returned home to find the babysitter and his twins, Andrew and James, gone. He also discovered a bag of coins was missing. The bag contained several pennies that were corroded, but also some wheat pennies, a few nickels, and a 1941 mercury dime. The police were notified and Tammy's home was searched. It was found that $15 was missing from Tammy's possessions, and the coat she had been wearing that morning at the Vogelsangs had somehow been returned to her trailer. Law enforcement quickly mobilized to find the missing boys and babysitter. The day after they were last seen, October 30th, they spoke with three children who had seen a distinctive black Mustang with horses in the back window at Tammy's home. During recess, the three children had seen Tammy and the twins in this car, which belonged to Arnold Rubeck Jr. That previous day, Arnold had stopped at a gas station, asking the attendant to give him $1.40 worth of gas. The attendant ran it over to $1.65, but Arnold only had $1.56 in change to pay with. He then made arrangements to pay off some traffic tickets and told the clerk he would be back later to do so. Later that day, he purchased an additional $6.40 in gas and then went to the bank. There, he cashed $4.34 in change, which consisted of some wheat pennies, a 1941 mercury dime, and some corroded pennies. Right around 1 o'clock, he paid $5 on his traffic fines, then returned a borrowed shotgun and some shells to a friend in Kingman, Kansas. On November 1st, all three victims were found in a thickly wooded area to the north of the Vogelsing residence. All three had been shot. One of the boys was shot once. 
The other was shot twice, and Tammy was shot four times. Deborah Vogelsang theorized that Tammy had been shot four times because she heroically tried to save the twins from the gunman. Arnold's car was confiscated and searched by the Kansas Bureau of Investigations, and during that search, a hair was found that matched Tammy's. On November 4, 1984, Arnold was arrested and held on $100,000 bail. The sheriff expressed relief that Arnold had been arrested because there were multiple people who were threatening to go after him, to the extent that during his first hearing, Arnold was fitted with a bulletproof vest for his own protection. The Vogelsangs were close friends with Arnold's dad, Arnold Sr., who also attended the twins' funerals. He embraced the parents, visibly shaken and upset. Arnold Jr. proclaimed his innocence, but spent seven months in jail before his family was able to make bond. He was released just days after his daughter was born. While released, he tried to drum up some positive publicity to show the public that he wasn't a devil, as one New York detective magazine had portrayed him. In that situation, Arnold sued the magazine for libel. Arnold had filed motions for his trial to have a change of venue, but these were all denied. When the case finally went to trial, Arnold was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of aggravated kidnapping and sentenced to 12 life sentences. The prosecutors and law enforcement maintained that the motive for the murders was robbery, but this was never absolutely proven. Arnold died in prison on March 23, 2021, at 54 years old. Since both of these cases are older and the victims were also young, not much is known about them. We hope we did our best in sharing who they were as much as possible. Tammy Mooney was 18 and engaged to be married. But the other three, Janet Chrisman, who was apparently a very hard worker and determined to save up for that Easter suit, while the Vogelsang twins were just babies. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can follow us on our social media. We're active on Twitter, for now, at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is at truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, with content editing by Jesse Hawk. Produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.